Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? with me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement, and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Adam Pearson is a British actor, presenter, and campaigner. At the age of five, he was diagnosed with neurofibromatosis type 1, which causes non-cancerous tumours to grow on nerve tissue. Adam has worked on all five series of The Undateables on Channel 4 and presented the BBC Three documentaries Freak Show and The Ugly Face of Disability, Hate Crime. In 2013, he appeared in the Jonathan Glazer film Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson. And I caught up with him to talk about his role earlier this year. Hi, everybody. My guest this week is Adam Pearson, and we'll be talking about the film Under the Skin. Hi, Adam. How are you? I am very well, thank you, sir. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. No, not at all. How's, uh, how's it been the last year for you in this COVID madness? Well, lockdown one was great because they, they went, oh, you can't see other people. And I was like, amazing. Other people <laughs> get right on my nerves. <laughs> and then the second one was a bit less fun. And, and at this point, I'm missing my mates. I'm missing the pub. And I haven't had a good hug for a while. Mm. Yeah, I think this this one's been just because of the weather as well and just being in winter. And I just think, you know, for most people, it's been a bit... Crazy. I've found it really tough, really. But we'll, we'll get through it. The, the, the rollout's happening and we've, we've got the roadmap. So hopefully, hopefully the dawn is coming and winter is finishing. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, listen, I just want to talk, because this is one of my favourite films. I mean, he's one of my favourite filmmakers and stuff. And I've worked with Scarlett a few times. But let's just go back a little bit and just talk me through... When when did you get the call? How did you find out about it at all? Well, I I was casting something at the time. I was working for the uh, an independent TV company who make a lot of things, uh, Channel Four and the the BBC. And I was casting the second series of the Undateables at the time. This was about ten years ago now. This all happened, and I got an email from the charity Changing Faces, who are the largest charity in the UK who support people with disagreements and visible differences 
saying, hey, we've had a film company get in touch. They want a guy with a cigarette to be in a film. Here's the lady's number. Um, if you're interested, give her a call. And the only, I, and you know, I, I called, we had a chat, and the only real concrete piece of info I had on anything was the name Jonathan Glazer. And as someone with a, a business degree, I'd written papers on, on his adverts. The man's a, a genius. <laughs> so there was a little part of me that was like, if you, if you don't at least throw your name in a hat, you're an idiot. And, and the further down the line the whole process went, the more serious it got. But what, what happened at the initial part, though? I mean, had you done any performing before? Had you done any sort of character work or anything like that? I, I'd done no character work. I'd done presenting. I'd done documentaries and, and strand presenting. Yeah, you've been, yourself, you do... you've been yourself in stuff, hadn't you? Yeah. But when, when you do TV presenting, there is an element of theatricality to it you're yourself but with the volume turned up a little bit and even as a kid i was always running around the house with like the curtain rail around my neck as a cape going ah <laughs> so i think i think we all have an innate performer that, that lays within us it's a case of do do we embrace that how much of that do we do we rely on etc etc so we're, we're all performers just some of us master it more more than than others so i hadn't done any acting or, or character work up and up until then and then i had to send a, a youtube clip of myself to see how i moved and how i spoke and posture body language cadence etc and then i had to go and meet the director i had to go and meet jonathan for like the final chat and on the way to that meeting, I got hit by a cab on Tottenham Court Road and broke my leg. Oh, my God. And so the first time I met Jonathan Glazer, I was under a taxi in just my pants, surrounded by paramedics, high as a giraffe's ass on morphine, <laughs> and, and, and apparently got the job. That was my first impression. If only you'd known. If only, that's all it took was getting knocked over by a cab. Well, they say break a leg, don't they? And I'm nothing if not a literalist. <laughs> so what happened? So you got hit by a cab and then someone told him and he came out to see you? I, I called him. Adrenaline kicked in. And I, I got my phone out. I was just like, hey, funny story. Just been hit by a black cab. think my leg's broken. I'm still really keen. Don't think I'm not keen. I'm just going to be about 10 minutes late. That is fantastic. So he, did he... Um... Did he, was he sympathetic or did he still audition you or what, what happened? The, the, the conversation when him, and again, I've only heard this from other people because, and I can't stress this enough, morphine. He said, bloody hell, Adam, I didn't realise you did your own stunt work. To which I replied, mate, do I look like I've got a fucking stunt double? <laughs> and, Brilliant. And then he... And he came and saw me the next day when I was in UCL waiting for surgery. I had to have surgery. I had to have like a rod pit in my leg and everything. I went all in on this. Like, I, when I say broke it, I mean knee and foot not pointing the same way. Levels of, of broke it. And so he came in, saw me the next day, and essentially offered me the role. That is amazing. That is just, that is one of the best stories of going for an interview I've ever heard. 
Everything I could do to not get the role, I did, and they still hired me. All those things that we feel before we're going for an interview. I mean, when you, you've done presenting before and stuff like that, but how do you deal with those type of anxieties or nerves, or do you not have them? Well, I, I always try really hard. It wasn't the nerves thing that, that bothered me. I think that's just part of the game at this point. And I've already been used to, to cameras and interviews and public speaking and what have you. My biggest thing was what if I just go in there and sandboy? What if I just go in there, sit down and shout things about Levi Jeans and Guinness and Radiohead at a man who has probably had this conversation multiple times with much more articulate people than than myself? But you, you go in and there, there is an element of they're taking a bit of a punt on you because you're in a film with Scarlett Johansson and no one knows who the hell you are. But you, not much like anything, you rock up, you do your job, you hang around people who know a lot more about this than you. And you sit under the learning tree and trust that you're in good hands. And what did you know about the film, though? Had you read the script? Was there a script? Did you know anything about it? Because it's such an unusual film. It's very atmospheric, and I don't know what it would have looked like on the page, but did you know anything about it? I knew it was based on a book. At this point, I knew the title, and I knew that there'd be be funding coming from from Film 4. And so I got the book, and I obsessed over the book, and then it turns out the film is nothing like the book. So that was a giant waste of time. For, for I, I, I had also deduced in the book that at some point I would need to get my penis out. So I'd kind of reconciled myself to to that very early on in, in the game, that there'd be a nudity scene. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I think it was six weeks after, after I broke my leg, I went to Elstree Studios to meet the lady I'd be working with. And I, like I said, I'd done my research. I knew film four were, were involved. Tyrannosaur had just come out and done exceptionally well. And that was also a film four funded endeavor. So in my head, I sort of managed my expectations and geared myself up to meet Olivia Coleman. I was like, I'm going to hover into that room and Olivia Coleman's going to be there. And it's going to be quite cool. And so I walk into this room and go, hi, I'm Adam. And then this woman comes up to me and goes, hi, I'm Scarlett. And at that point, I'd only just seen Iron Man 2. At that point, my inner child starts freaking out. And I, I play it cool and go, yes, yes, you are. <laughs> and how was she? How was that first meeting? I I love Scarlett Hansen so much. She's, she's kind, she's funny, she's smart. She's incredibly charming. She was incredibly patient with me as a new actor who is asking what to her must be really dumb questions. That's really, I think that is fantastic though. That idea of there is no dumb questions that asking be for, cause I've worked with Scarlett and she's everything you said she is. She's just wonderful. But that also that thing of being inclusive, she's, you know, th- that idea of having a discussion, creating a great space to be able to work in. Mm. Uh, that's, that's, really what she's all about i mean what in that first meeting what type of things were you discussing were you talking about character and story 
Yeah, absolutely. The character, the, the story, the actual arc is very much put in place. She drives around in, in that van, coaxing men into it. And it was, oh, would you in real life get into a van if a, a hot woman pulled up and asked you if you want to lift? And I, I was categorically no, that's how children go missing. And it was, how can we build this, this character and, and this dialogue and, and make it believable? How close can we get it to reality without without bastardizing the art form of acting, but also give it a level of depth and, and gravitas and believability? But was it on the page? Were you improvising or was it on the page? So the scene in the van, we, are, we have bullet points we have to hit, but we've both got an earpiece in and Jonathan is in the back of the van with hair, makeup, wardrobe. And he's just giving us little little bits of direct chain of, of what to do and, and pacing and what have you. But there wow. is a lot of improv in in that. The um the Tesco thing, completely improv. That's brilliant. That's one of the my favourite lines is the Tesco one. It's the only gag in the whole film. <laughs> it is, it makes and you're so relieved for it. But there's something about your character that is, it's pivotal, isn't it, in the, in the film? Because it's where she, her character finds her humanity, really. Did you talk about the film in those terms? Yeah, but this is a, almost the, the apex of her, her transformation. So I, I'm the only one that she lets go. Yeah. And how, how can we hit that process of humanization? Because it happens gradually over the film. Even if you listen to the soundtrack, it starts to get like warmer and warmer and warmer. Yes. As as the film goes on, which is which is mostly down to just Mika Levy and just her amazing mind, her musicality and and the conveying of, of emotion. Yeah, the soundtrack I have to say is just extraordinary. She, Mika Levy is just fucking cracking to work with and and be around. I was really fortunate. I got to go and see it with her conducting a live orchestra and doing the entire soundtrack live. And and in, in, in the film, just in situ, it's amazing. But hearing it done live, it's just a whole whole other animal. It sounds like you were very it sounds like you were very greedy for the whole experience, that you were you wanted to learn, you were able to ask questions, you were able to be there. And of course that needs people around uh, around you to be re- receiving those questions and, and and allowing it to happen. So you, how did you end up going to the uh, recording of the soundtrack, for example? Oh, I didn't go to the recording of the soundtrack. It was at Breakdown Festival at the uh-huh. uh, the South Bank, and one of my good friends, Chelsea, was um, James Avell's curator. Right, and he he was putting the whole thing on, and so they just asked, "Did I did I want to come?" Come with them. Her and her husband had gotten a, a few a few tickets, and I think they worked out that they if they brought one of the guys from the film along, they'd get a little bit of kudos, right? And get and, and maybe be able to sneak in to the uh, the upstairs party rather than the the crappy downstairs one where you have to pay for the booze. <laughs> and how the, the, you meet Scarlett? You do a rehearsal. You sort of talk about it. How long between that meet? Is Jonathan at that meeting? Yeah, he is. Yeah, me, Jonathan and Scarlett had two meetings, one at Elstree and one at a, a hotel in, in, in London. 
where I, I learned my favourite fun fact about Scarlett Johansson. Cookies are very much a kryptonite. She loves cookies. <laughs> okay, okay. But also, how long between those meetings to when you shot the film? How long was, was that between those two? Not, not long, because I, I broke my leg on September 7th. 2011 and then i flew out to glasgow on the 11th of on the 11th of november mm-hmm. 2011 so the whole process happened really quickly and was that an advantage not having a lot of time to think about it i mean you must have been nervous i mean you must have been because you although you've presented as we've said Acting is different. I mean, it is. Did you? What did you think about the character? What? What? What were your thoughts and insights on this man that you were playing? Well, it was a case of trying to get into that that headspace, and and again, it was my first one, so I had I had to have a lot of stuff pulled out of me, and 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 again, that's just complete credit to Jonathan and Scarlett uh, as well to have that kind of time and that patience, patience with me, and I. You think about it, but it's also important that you don't overanalyze things and sort mm-hmm. of like start to trip yourself out a, a little bit because that, that's like another barrier. If you try and make acting should acting at its heart, it should be like a natural outpouring of the soul mm-hmm. rather than rather than an exercise in memory and mechanics. Mm-hmm. But when you say they pull things out of you or they sort of encourage you to do the- what were you? How did that process go? I mean, what type of notes were they giving? What What was the rehearsal process like for you? There wasn't much rehearsal, rehearsal in in a sense. We just got in the van, drove around, and and had a chat. Mm-hmm. And it's a case of getting just getting in the moment. When or before before I I sort of started acting, I used to watch interviews with actors who would say things like get lost in the moment. And as a non-actor, it's really easy to look at actors saying that kind of thing and just go, you wanker. But I completely get it now. Like, completely get get what they mean. Mm-hmm. But you had great, obviously great understanding for the character. I mean, there's a bit where you talk about needing to shop at night and stuff like that. I mean, did you bring any of your own experience to the role? I think any actor brings their own baggage to, to the role. On... It's, it's why a lot of that, it's why most actors are in therapy. We're, we're dark, needy people who spend our lives pretending to be someone, someone we're not, because the reality of who we are is is complex and awkward. And there are elements of um, certainly growing up and feeling ostracised and not wanting to go to, to certain places and, and that desire to, I suppose, be be invisible, unnoticed, and live a quiet life free of, of ridicule. Mm-hmm. And so those are emotions that whilst I, I didn't have then and don't have now, I certainly have experience of and have very much had to process. Mm. And I suppose the tricky part was letting one's guard down enough to go back to those emotions and, and relive them again, rather than being matter-of-fact. And, and even in interviews, he said that I am, at heart, I'm an advocate. And so to go back and experience the thing that you advocate against was somewhat challenging. But again, because of good direction and, and a very kind, patient co-star who has just this amazing emotional intelligence, you you get there. 
Can you just talk to me about that challenge, though, revisiting those emotions? You say they're challenging. Are they challenging because you've buried them so deeply or are they challenging because they're upsetting? Uh, I think it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. I think to say I, I buried them is, is grandiose. I think you've dealt with them, you've reconciled with them. And therefore, you don't think about them, not because you don't want to, but because you don't have to. Mm-hmm. And I think you can still acknowledge your past pains and traumas and experiences without without overly dwelling on them. Mm-hmm. And so to go back and, and process them, uh, have to kind of process them again for the purpose of this character, was, was tricky because I haven't had to do it more out of necessity. I haven't had the need to do it rather than a lack of desire, desire to do it. I mean, sometimes when I access stuff from my own life in my work, you know, sometimes I can, I can access it surprisingly easy. But what I can't do easily is let it go at the end of the day or the end of the shoot or something. It's sort of, it's like I've opened up a bit of a well in there as well. I mean, did you have any of that? Oh, absolutely. There are times when you've got to, uh, uh, even everyone on, on a film set has to experience the same thing together. And I think when they are cut, the idea that you can just clap your hands and be right, right, pub, is, is a ridiculous one. I remember after the night after they shot the, the baby on the beach, <laughs> I was downstairs with sort of like Jeremy and the camera guys, and ev- everyone was just still, even, even like a day removed, still super messed up. Oh, I am. I mean, I, I, I'm messed up having seen it. I mean, God, what, what it must have been like to shoot it. I mean, gosh. And, 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 and that's what they were talking about. And we just, they were just talking about it going, yeah, that was, that was weird. That was, <laughs> that was dark. That's so and, strange. And then we just, and then, you know, and we just, they just had a pint and had, had a chat about it. And, and I suppose that's how you, you process it. I don't think you can park that and, and leave it where it is. No. And, it, and it, oh, it, honey, how, oh, honey, how, oh, how, Hi, honey, how was your day? We made a baby cry on a stormy beach at midnight. Wednesday. No, that's just weird. The scene in the van is beautifully played. It's something that's, it's both surprising and tender and really sort of wonderful, I think, given given the two of you in the, in the van. But then you get to the house and it's, that's quite a tricky scene for different reasons, isn't it? How did you prepare for that? Just talk us through what that what happened in that scene and how you prepared for it. Yeah, so the the house stuff is is scripted. The house stuff I've got at this point I've got not many lines granted, but I got I got bullets and points that I I have to hit. And again, it's all about making sure you know what you have to say and move how you have to, but without making it that exercise in mechanics and memory that I I spoke about earlier and and also it, it was like a closed set and, and there's nudity involved so I also wanted to keep things like completely and utterly respectful mm-hmm. but by this point I, I'd grown to really like Scarlett Johansson as as a person and I didn't want to be and she, she gets enough weirdos more than likely anyway without without me sort of adding to it 
And, I, I, and at the time, we also had a girlfriend who I didn't want to want to disrespect either. And so it's a case of keeping all that in mind, doing your job, being respectful, and also and also give, kind of giving it your all. Mm-hmm. I think very often it's easy to forget that as actors, we're there to do a job. It isn't this isn't shits and giggles. No, no. But also talk me through the set. The set is a very strange place, isn't it? How was that? Is it in a studio, I presume? Well, it is divided into into two two things. So the, the building and going up those stairs is is in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And then the what is often called the dark void in the in the Reddit sphere when discussing this song is in studio and it's a black marble floor. And in the corner you've got like a tank of almost tar slash molasses. Mm. And just below the surface is a hydraulic grate. And the way they make it look like you're sinking into the floor is just really clever lighting and camera work. And the guys are walking forward while the grate's being lowered. And we've got diving weights around our ankles as well because the stuff is that thick. But it has a lot of buoyancy to it. It can support a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And I'm only, what, nine stone nine? So how did it feel walking into it? I mean, it's, it looks like treacle. Yeah, it, 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 it's cold. It's quite thick. So you're really going to push when you're walking in it. You're really going to got to kind of put your back and your ass into it to, to make it look like you're walking forward or organically. And mm-hmm. we, we did three different takes. So we did one of me walking forward just up to up to here. Up to your neck, then yeah. We did, yeah, yeah. Then we did me walking forward, not being lowered up to here. And then we, we did one of me going, going right under. Yeah. Now, how was that? Because there's three guys, I think, who have to go right yeah. under. I mean... Did you have any worries about going right, putting your head through it? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I, you know, I, I knew, I knew the guys that did all, all the set and stuff, and I, and to this day, I still love and trust Jonathan Glazer implicitly. And so you, you go right. He says because I've spoken about it. He says I was under for maybe three seconds, and it felt like a minute mm. to him. And Lord. as soon as I go under, all I can hear is just. Shouting, get him up! <laughs> was the safety guys, are they like, because I've worked in water tanks where there's always safety divers and stuff like that. Are there people around like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are people around to, should something go wrong, every, every circumstance is mitigated for. So at that point, I was like, okay, I don't need to, I don't need to worry about this. I'm going to knock this one out of the ballpark. Because the stuff takes ages to get off. Yeah, I was so going to say. If anything, I wanted to get it right the first time so I don't have to fuck about with this again. Like, <laughs> Did they have to hose you down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get in like a giant bucket hose and then go and shower off. And there's like you put a layer of barrier cream on beforehand so it doesn't truly stick to you. It, 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 getting it off was an endeavour. And did you know... Are you an actor who like watches yourself on the monitor? Do you know? Can you see what it looks like? Are you are you looking at it uh, in playback or anything like that? I I don't like seeing anything until it's done. The first time I want to see myself is when everyone else sees it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why is that? Do you think? I want to I want to get 
I want my own. I want my opinion of my performance to be unbiased and unclouded at this point. Mm-hmm. And that's to do with the fact that you're trusting your director implicitly. Yeah, absolutely. And if I and also, I don't want my own bias to affect the role. Again, mm-hmm. I don't want to overanalyze it and overthink it, and almost start doing a director's job for them. Mm-hmm. I want to respect that power dynamic that exists. But are you able to? The instincts that you have for the character, the, the, the experience that you have from your own life that you're bringing to the character, is that something that you will sit down and discuss with the director? Or is it something you think, I'm just going to play this, and if it's wrong, he'll tell me? I think so one half a dozen of the other, I think. Mm-hmm. I think you have a really brief chat with the director, but you don't over, overcomplicate it or, or restrict it too much. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can, because uh, otherwise it all becomes a bit boxed in and, and it looks forced. So I think you have big direct chain of bullet points and then you you nail it. And then if, you, if they have feedback, you you take it, you listen to it, you process it and, and you do it. Okay, I, think any good actor, I think any good actor should be able to take direction and criticism exceptionally well. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think sometimes we are victims of our insecurities, though, aren't we? That we, because acting is exposing, we are stepping forward, we are asking people to judge us, all those things, that we can get quite insecure. Have you ever, is there a way that you have of, exp- like, working through it, any insecurities, or, or have you not encountered that? Well, there is an element of when you have to do multiple takes of things, Particularly with Under the Skin, because it was my first acting acting gig. When you have to do something for like a ninth time, there is that little voice of doubt in your head that goes, I must really be effing this up. Like, I must well and truly be messing this up. But then you learn it's just they're getting different angles and stuff and that they're getting, they're getting options. And I think being able to silence that voice is, is really important. But also knowing that if you are messing up, you will be told in no uncertain terms. Right. And how, in the van, how does he film it? Is it sort of little cameras everywhere on the dashboard and on this windscreen and stuff? And you say he's in the back of the van, so is he sort of, has he got monitors in the back of the van as you're driving along? Yes, so to the, the best of my knowledge, there were monitors in the back of the van and there were, I think, eight purpose-built cameras in the cab to get the interior and the exterior. By the end of the shoot, we had roughly 120 hours of surveillance-style footage of just stuff, of just people. Wow. I mean, when she's just driving along and she's just asking for directions, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, I guess that's the hidden camera stuff. And it really draws you in. Mm-hmm. I, I often say to people, if you want, if you like this song and you want a super weird experience, watch it. And then just put your headphones in, play the soundtrack, and just go out and watch people. Oh, God, I've got to do that. Just sit in a coffee shop and, when you can and watch people. I do that anyway. That's my life. <laughs> we'll be back with more chat after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. And what was it like when, you know, you, you finished the filming and what did you walk away from that experience with? What did you, because you say it was your first acting role. Mm-hmm. Did you, did it whet your appetite to sort of do more character work? Um, absolutely. I think when you, you do something like that, I think to just completely walk away from it and be like, well, that was fun. Back to my real life. Mm-hmm. Would be rather, rather disingenuous. And the, the biggest thing that I had when I walked away from it was thinking, I hope this isn't shit. How is this going to be received is, is always the big, the big worry. And, and then it, it did really well and it stuck around. And I, I genuinely thought it would be in cinemas for two weeks and I'd never see or hear from it again. So did you have a premiere? I, I went to the London premiere. Yes, I couldn't go to things like Telluride or Tiff or Venice. But I very much got to go to the London premiere. I took my best friend, Anna. With was me. that the first time you saw it? Yeah, absolutely. So the first time you saw it was with an audience at the premiere? Indeed. And what was that experience like? Really, really cool. I think mm-hmm. there's something, because it, it's a certain type of person that goes to a premiere. When you go to a premiere, you're there with people that either love film or loathe film. They're there to build or there to destroy. No, no one is there with the mindset, oh, I'm just going to check this out. And so to get that kind of ambiance and that feeling and just just see, and I, I, I like reading. I'm, I'm a real cold reader. So I'm, I'm looking around, looking at kind of people's body language and... And just, just hearing just the silence in the room at, at certain moments. Like, again, we've mentioned it, baby on the beach, when she murked a surfer with a rock, just people, yeah. you can hear people's either, you can either hear a sharp intake of breath or an A in a snappy shot. Those are the two correct reactions to, to that scene. And just to just watch people get just sucked into to this and just how engaged people are in a film where there's no spoken dialogue for a good 20 minutes at a time. Mm. 
But are you able to look at your own performance objectively at that point? I mean, watching it in a premiere with lots of people, you know, it's being reviewed, you know. I mean, are you able to look at yourself and think, oh, that was a good job there. I liked, I wish I'd done that a bit differently or whatever. Can you be uh, critical and objective about it? I, at the time, no, because I didn't know what I was looking for. But now I can look back and, and think, yeah, that, that was good. Or, oh, I understand why I was directed to to do that. But I, I don't think anyone can be truly objective about their own performance mm. anyway. I don't there's an element of provider that exists to all actors where they'll be like, yeah, I nailed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also sometimes it depends who we're watching it with. Sometimes if I'm on my own, I can watch something and think, okay, I'm watching this and I can see where I might have wanted to do something different or where something has worked or whatever. When I'm watching it with an audience, I have a different experience and just as valuable about seeing where things land and don't land. But yeah, you're right. I mean, mostly I'm, I'm, you can never be totally objective about it. And how did it change your life? Did it, it must've changed your life as far as being an actor was concerned. I, I am attached to what is widely regarded as one of the best films of the decade. And when when I told you I thought it'd be in cinemas for a couple of weeks, and it then leave my life, I could not have been more wrong, could I? Yeah. I I could not have made a worse. If, if I wanted a quiet life, then Under the Skin was a bad decision. Was a bad decision, as as far as that goes. I still I still talk about it today. I still have people come up to me at underground stations, and and talk to me about it today. Yeah. One of one of my one of my best friends and his favourite places to get coffee is at the cafe in the VFI on the South Bank. I can't go there without having a conversation with someone. Yeah. I'm like, can we just go somewhere else? Can we go to like can we go to like a Nero in Lambeth where no one's gonna vo- no one's gonna <laughs> want to talk to me about under the skin. Uh, well, but it is. It's a. It's an endlessly. As I said, it's one of my favourite films. So it's an endlessly fascinating film as well. It keeps giving and giving. There's things every time you see it that you see it differently and experience it differently. And watching it again for this podcast, you know, there is a real sorrow and tenderness in your performance. And having seen you on other uh, programs where you're yourself and you're presenting, you know, there's a confidence, there's a humour, there's a there's a real connection with the audience that you're giving that's, you know, out there. But on that, there's, 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 a, there's a real sense that you're unconfident as a, as a character, that, that, that when you get into that van, you're taking such a risk in a way. And I, I, I love what you bring to the character in that way. And the reason I like, uh, thank you, first and foremost, and the reason I like hearing people like yourself say that who understand film is it it puts into focus what acting is. Because very often, particularly at the moment, we have the debate rages on about disability in film and and quipping up and how far is too far and and what acting is. And when I I had this debate with the the Sia movie, and this idea that if you have a disabled character, a disabled actor playing a disabled character, that it somehow isn't acting, is is ludicrous. It makes mm. absolutely no no sense to me. It, it is a female playing a female character, not acting then, or or, or, or a BAME actor playing a BAME character. Uh, and and I, I certainly agree that there, there is an element of, of facade to, 
to acting. But I think we need to be really careful when we, when we talk about things like protected characteristics. Um, and often people don't really understand the, the debate that certainly the disabled acting community is trying to have when it comes to representation. So what would you like to see? What would you like to see more happening in, in that arena? I, I want to get more disabled actors in the audition room. That, that's what I want, and let their talent do the talking. But at the moment, we're not even getting that. Right. As someone that has spent a lot of time in a, in a Leicester Square at Spotlight, it's one of the most inaccessible buildings in London. So if you can't get disabled actors literally through the door, how are you ever going to get them on screen? And there's also laziness. Spotlight redid their website, and they had a disability opt-out box for casting directors. I mean, what, what's that? I mean, they quickly removed it when they got called out on it and threw equity under the bus a little bit. But, you know, what's what's that all about? And it, it's just a case of changing people's attitudes and letting disabled actors use their talents and, and do the talking. And, and you know, organically, we'll, we'll get there. In 1965, Olivier won an Oscar for playing Othello. Are we going to do that in 2021? Mm-hmm. No, no, we aren't. Shakespeare plays used to be all male casts. I, I believe a theatre company in New Zealand tried to do that in 2017 and rightfully got, got shot down. So progress does happen. I just think disability is very much not at the table when it comes to the, the diversity and inclusivity conversation in the wider media industry. And but when you, absolutely. when you bring up the Olivier uh, example, would you put Daniel Day-Lewis in that as well for My Left Foot? I, I would. People often use that as an example. Uh, or, or De Niro's Descent of a Woman or Rain Man from, from 1988. And I think art needs to be looked at through the prism of time in which it was created. And at, at the time, all those amazing so things things have moved on we have a better understanding of both disability and diversity and and the, the landscape is very different now mm-hmm. and i think when we say things like oh what about olivier what about my left what about what about rain man i don't really need to be like yeah great but let's all move on mm-hmm. and and represent that community better than maybe we have done before from a production point point of view do you see examples where are the examples that it's that it is working I mean sometimes I'm looking at I've always felt that our soap operas are very you know you know really out there and and they sort of kick down the barriers and it seems to be working there do you think that's true I think soap operas are, are doing a very good job. There's there's actual disabled actors playing actual disabled roles there. I just think film is so far behind because it, it's a money game, and the the decision makers just don't don't get it. They they attach a name a number to a name, and and that's how you get funding. Mm-hmm. And the argument that there are no disabled actors who can bring in that audience. Right, number one, whose who's fault's that? That puts the cart very much before the horse, in my opinion. But also, if you need a, if you need to attach a name to a film rather than letting the actual film and the story stand on its own merits, maybe you're making bad films. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the movie industry 
Is there any examples where you've seen that working in recent years? I can't think of any anything that got a wide a wide reach. Mm-hmm. Um, the last disabled actor to win an Oscar for playing a disabled role was in 1987. There've only been two out of the I think 27 Oscar awards for disability. Only two have been disabled, mm-hmm. and I don't. And, and that that befuddles me completely. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, the change needs to happen not just in front of the camera with the stories and the, and the actors that we're seeing, but in all crew members, I think. But what about things like cinematography and, you know, all the other jobs that are on a film set? I mean, th- there seems to me that's the other areas we need to be looking at. Absolutely. If you don't get it right off screen, you're never going to get it right off screen. And there's this idea that disability and inability are very much the same thing when nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. And there's all these lazy excuses about, oh, we can't get a wheelchair up a hill. Well, you can get 10 tons of camera gear up a hill. So mm-hmm. explain explain that one to me. Thank you, please. Mm-hmm. And, and people need to be held to account. And at the moment, that isn't happening because there are no disabled voices in positions of authority anywhere. And you talk about equity in places like that. I mean, are there, from your point of view, are there, is there any movement for change at, the, at those top echelons of representation? Equity have a very good um, deaf and disabled members committee who very much feed into the industry. And, and hold people to account. So the conversation is happening. But I don't, as I alluded to before, I don't think everyone's having the same conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of pandering and, and glad-handed yes-men at the top of the, the industry who make a lot of very good noise, say a lot of things, and will put in targets and quotas that they inevitably don't meet, but very little actual action. Like at the BBC, for example, on-screen disability went down last year, mm-hmm. despite all of the talking. And I think we need to start holding people to account. And when they don't do what they say they're going to do, they maybe need to either pay a fine or find a new job. Mm-hmm. And who, I mean, you know, it's that thing of when you say keeping them to account, it's it's all it's all our jobs to keep them to account, isn't it? It's not just uh, you and 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 the, the, your your you know community, I guess. But I mean, it's it's everybody, isn't it? Oh, it is. I, I always say it's not the job of the disabled acting community to fix a problem they didn't create. <laughs> and does it start with writing, or does does it start with the commissioners? I think both. I think we need to empower disabled writers to tell disabled stories. And then when they do, commission them. Like, I don't, I don't, when people say, oh, but that's a risk, everything's a risk. Uh, you know, crossing Tottenham Court Road to go to a film audition is a risk. <laughs> so stop, stop using that as an excuse just because you maybe have some kind of unconscious bias or, or what have you. And I often we forget that the economical out, output of risk is reward. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that we have to reflect the world we see. And if we're not, you know, if it's not up there, 
one of the things for me is when I was growing up was I was I was I was inspired by people I saw on screen who reminded me of me or the world I inhabited. So if you're not seeing it, then you don't think it's possible. No, uh, when I was a child, I didn't think disabled people were allowed on TV because there weren't any. And if you were, if you were uh, an, an alien and your only knowledge of disability was portrayal in films, You'd all assume that we lived in layers under volcanoes in the Bahamas and just didn't like secret agents. <laughs> and what about um, acting roles for you in the future? I mean, what's, um, what have you got lined up? What, what is the, your plans? I, I tend to take things on a, on a case-by-case basis and just see, see what the offer is, see who it's coming from, see, see what they have. I don't want to do anything that's going to perpetuate the problems. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. So if anything comes in and it's sort of like either a wanky victim role or a because disabled villain role, I have no interest in that. Go away, write a better character, and then and then come back to me. Don't use disability as some kind of shorthand because you're too lazy to flesh out a character. And how often do you read that type of character? How often do you get scripts oh, that have that? A couple of times a year. I get just right. like an awful disabled villain because disabled. Mm. I mean, it has been used that in the past, hasn't it? The, the, this, this, that idea of disability equaling evil in some way. It, it's everywhere. Disney, mm. Scar from the Lion King, Captain mm. Hook, Alex Trevelyan in Goldeneye, who dis- his disability makes him evil. Mm. Beforehand, great guy. Acquires the cigarette, becomes an arsehole. What's all that, <laughs> what's all that about? Yeah, it is an old uh, lazy trope, isn't it? Oh, it is. All this idea of victimhood in, in the film Wonder, a kid gets a medal for having a disfigurement and not killing himself. Like, oh, okay, where's my damn medal? And, and yeah, it's just this very one-dimensional view of, of looking at disability. And where, where's the incidental disabled characters? Where's the character that has a disability but no one mentions it. Yes. I think that's the big change, isn't it, where you're playing a character that it's got nothing at all to do with the disability. It's, it is, it's just a proper character. It's a character in the story. Absolutely, and that's what you need to get better at. And, that's the, and when I say go away and write a better character, that's exactly what I'm referring to. Are we getting better in society at all? I, I think we are. I think we are. I think it's slow. But I think we are getting there. And I, 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 I sometimes feel sorry for people in, in these conversations because we've got this landscape now that's so politically correct that everyone's afraid to say the wrong thing for fear of being cancelled or mm-hmm. kind of cancelled. Mm-hmm. That people just sit in awkward silence. So until we can do away with cancel culture and let people maybe inadvertently say the wrong thing and be lovingly corrected, we, we aren't going to go anywhere. But I, I, I hate cancer culture. I'd rather have a good, honest conversation and may, maybe, maybe you know, be a bit offended, but also be able to, you know, I'm a big boy, I can handle it, but be able to lovingly correct someone. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference between outright bigotry and just uncertainty and maybe getting it wrong. And I think when we treat those things as the same, we stop what could be a fruitful conversation.
Mm-hmm. I think that's great to hear. I mean, absolutely, because there is, particularly in in Britain, we we survive on embarrassment, and terrible, terrible things happen because we're too embarrassed to talk about it, and you know, and and in all walks of life and in all areas of life. So I think having a being able to have the conversation, no matter how awkward and difficult it is, it has to be had. Yeah, nothing nothing worth doing ever happened easily, ever. Mm-hmm. If it was easy, we'd all do it. Mm-hmm. And in your, I had to say that your documentary, I thought was amazing um, uh, freak show uh, documentary that you did where you go to America and you do stand up at the end which I thought was great are you doing any more of that I'm, I'm trying to obviously comedy clubs aren't open at, no, moment, at the so moment open, yeah. open mic slots are, are rather rather scarce um, that whole documentary came about because of Under the Skin yeah, uh, it, when it came out in America, I got a, a message on Facebook from a man called Todd Ray, who at the time owned and ran the uh, Venice Beach Week Show in California, essentially essentially saying, if you're ever in California, you let me know. There's plenty of work out here for you. Uh, and, and at the time, I, I was a little bit kind of, kind of, Fuck you, motherfucker! <laughs> and then, then, and then, I told my my um, my friend Dan about it, who worked in development at the TV company I was working for, and he's like, "That's hilarious. We should make a documentary about it." But it's a wonderful documentary. I mean, I think it's really, you know, I'm, the the bit where you you meet is it Matt Fraser, who's yeah. who's performing, and just you're sitting in a, a like a bar. And these two girls come and have a photograph with him, and have, they know him. They've seen his show. There's something in that that you think, "Wow, okay, this is it's a real empowerment that's happening for him and other people." No, completely. And I, I love and adore Matt Fraser. He's all about empowering disabled voices to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. And and even through just hanging around, hanging around the guy, I learned so much by by os, osmosis. And he's yeah, he's. He's going to hear this and he's going to get well cocky. But I, I, I love and adore Matt Fraser. He's, yeah. he's a solid, solid guy. Yeah, and his act is quite out there, isn't it? Oh, he, yeah. Are you sitting comfortably? Not anymore. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, Adam, it's been so great talking to you. I, I can't tell you what, I mean, as I said about uh, Under the Skin, it's such a, a wonderful film, but it's a brilliant performance. And, you know, you bring so much tenderness and real sort of heart to the film. It is the pivotal part of the film for me. And uh, when, you know, there's a bit there's a bit that we didn't talk about where you're running through this waste ground and it's like this liberation and it's so fantastic to see. It's a really brilliant piece. That was so cold. I was like at 4 a.m. in November. I had to run down that hill eight times and I think that they got it on the first take and the rest of it were just paying me back for <laughs> breaking my leg and missing my flight and stuff. Yeah, I always think that. I did something at a tank recently where I had to dive into this water and stay under the water for ages. And I, afterwards, I kept thinking, I must have pissed this director off somewhere. I don't know why, because they made me do it so many times. It was horrible. Great. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And thank you for your insights into what we need to do in our, in our profession. 
Great stuff, mate. Who Am I This Time is a Just Voices and Doolally production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatler. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.